Hello and welcome to Live from the Space Shed, a podcast all about space and science hosted by me, John Spooner, and me. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, I mean you. <laughs> Mini John. Long story short, a few years ago I accidentally set up my own space agency based out of the shed at the bottom of my garden. Turns out that if you go around telling people you're the director of human spaceflight operations for the unlimited space agency wearing an orange spacesuit, more people than you might think want to play along. And now the British astronaut Tim Peake is our patron and he took me with him to space. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, alright, he took you with him to space. So Mini John became UNSA's first astronaut. Since then, we've been touring in UNSA's mobile headquarters, The Space Shed, to festivals like Latitude and Blue Dot, telling stories, talking to some super cool space and science people, and we've recorded our chats so you can find out about their amazing work as well. (laughs) Well, you should have gone before we left the house, shouldn't we? For this first episode of Live from the Space Shed, Space Doctor Kevin Fong joined us when we landed in the faraway forest at Latitude Festival. As well as holding a day job as a flying A&E doctor, Kevin also works regularly with NASA, cool, makes documentaries and podcasts about space for the BBC, cool, and nearly actually became an astronaut. (laughs) Yeah, like you, Mini John. (laughs) You can go in a minute, we're nearly done, promise Among loads of other things, Kevin and I chatted about how he became a space doctor, what it's like to fly in microgravity on the Vomit Comet, and he answered questions like, is God an astronaut, and discussed whether we need to be wearing more or less eyeliner in space. Big issues. So let's go. Go! Yeah, go. Go! Oh, you mean, sorry, forgot. You need to go, right, yeah. Enjoy the first episode of Live from the Space Shed. Hold it in, cross your legs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hello, my name is John, John Spooner. I am the Director of Human Spaceflight Operations here at the Unlimited Space Agency. Welcome to Answer HQ, the Space Shed! Give it up for the Space Shed! Hey! Yeah, hey, hey, who thought it was going to take off? Everyone always laughs. It's like I'm genuinely trying to get this thing off. The- In fact, it's only resources that, uh, that are stopping us from getting this off the ground. It's like anything. You have enough money, you can do it. So if anyone's got a spare few mil lying around, speak to me afterwards. We can come to an arrangement about how you could be co-pilot in the shed the first time we get it off the ground. OK, uh, well, maybe we'll send a hat round. So later today, we're here all weekend. Hello, welcome. Come in. Make yourselves comfortable. Don't sit on a pine cone. So we're here all weekend and I'm going to be telling stories, having conversations with very cool people. Two o'clock today, I'm going to be telling the story of how I hacked my way into space. I really did. And at four o'clock today, we have Professor John Butterworth, who is a collider physicist. If you want to find out what that is and have all your questions answered about the Large Hadron Collider, then he's here. But before then, I have an excellent guest for you, uh, someone I've wanted to have in the shed for a long time now. He is a doctor, a medical doctor. He flies uh, helicopters to rescue and save people lives. He's worked with NASA, the European Space Agency. Would you please welcome into the space shed now, give a massive latitude welcome to Dr. Kevin Fong! (laughs) Kevin, welcome to the shed. 
It's a real pleasure to have you here. I'm sorry that we didn't do the launch for you today. I'm sure we can work on that. You are, as I just said, you're a doctor, a real doctor. You're also a space doctor because you, you've studied many, many different things. Do you have a job title? No, well, not one that really works. I, I, <laughs> I, I, I mean, my day job is being a doctor for the NHS. Uh, I work on one of the helicopter emergency medical service ambulances, but I've also spent a lot of time working with NASA. So... Um, I, I am a space doctor. You are a space yeah, doctor. I'm a space doctor. We were talking about this earlier. You, it's quite a circuitous route that you've taken into having to give yourself a title of being a space doctor because you studied astrophysics to begin with when you left school. Yeah, that's right. I, I was a very badly prepared teenager and so studied a- astrophysics because the university applications handbook is, is alphabetical. And I thought <laughs> I, astrophysics looked cool and so I applied for that. Um, but I had wanted to be a doctor. I'd always wanted to be a doctor, really. But my school didn't send many people to medical school, and I thought you had to be really, really clever to do that. But then in my second year of university, I lived with medical students, and I, one night I came home and I took a long, hard look at them. I thought, how hard can it possibly be? So I did that. So Any other doctors here? Any medical students here? <laughs> Put your hand down! We do not want to interact! <laughs> How hard could it be to become a doctor? That's what it kept... <laughs> but you did. You did. You, f- you did your astrophysics degree and then you studied to become a doctor as well. Yeah, and then, and then I thought that was it. I thought I was, you know, that was no more space exploration for me. But towards the end of the medical degree, the thing that led me into medicine in the first place was my love of science. The thing that made me love science was space. Uh, and so I really thought, well, look, I always wanted to be two things when I was growing up. I wanted to be a doctor and I wanted to be an astronaut. And so I'm about to be a doctor let's try and do the other one as well so i uh wrote loads and loads and loads of letters to nasa um as saying can i come and work with you and eventually they said stop writing the letters and just come and work with us at johnson space center so i did and i worked with medical operations group this is fantastic this is the classic route in this is what i hear all the astronauts talk about that it's hard work so if you if you want to be as overachieving as kevin work hard and be persistent. Keep writing the letters until they say, stop writing to us. Oh, yeah, they literally said, stop writing. So, <laughs> so. And then you went out to NASA. I went out to NASA, and the first time I went there, I was at Johnson Space Center, which is where Mission Control is. And, and that, that's like, um, uh, you know, it's like Disney World for adults. There is just every ride you could want to go on, and they let you go on some of them. So in the mornings, they'd lecture us on how to look after their crews in space and the things that were likely to kill their astronauts and why we had to stop that happening. And then in the afternoons, they'd take us out on the training module. So they had space station mock-ups, uh, they had decompression chambers, um, and, and right at the end, they put us on uh, this, this plane that they used to simulate microgravity, uh, so weightlessness, which is uh, called the parabolic flight trainer, which sort of makes you weightless for about 23 seconds at a time. But, I mean, that is a ridiculous aircraft. I've, it's, so it's basically like the sort of aircraft that you would go from London to Paris on, it, with all the seats stripped out, all the, no windows, and then everything's padded. And then it cruises along at 25,000 feet, about three-quarters the speed of sound. And then it goes nose-high, about 45 degrees, which is as steep as you've ever been in any aircraft. And then the pilot then idles the engine, so it's now just coasting. So you can't, all you can hear is the wind rushing past the aircraft. And then it noses over the top uh, in a parabola. And for that 23 seconds, you're floating around inside the, the, the plane like you're in space. And it is amazing. It does that manoeuvre... 45 times over the Gulf of Mexico in an hour and a half 
and nearly everybody vomits. <laughs> the vomit comet. The vomit it's comet. comet. Um, it's, it's something I would love to do. Uh, well, I say that. I, it sounds awful. Quick show of hands. How many people would like to go nose high 45 <laughs> times and then literally fall out of the sky? It's a, it's a good half. It's a good half. Who's, who's absolutely not? An equal number of people going, no, that sounds disgusting. Um, <laughs> uh, it is great. They, 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 even, they give you a lecture on what to have for breakfast beforehand. Um, so, so they said they're like a big old English fry-up, very antisocial. Uh, and, uh, um, and they tell you to eat citrus fruit because it tastes about the same on the way up as it did on the way down. So, um, <laughs> and it's easier to get out of clothes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it's, it's true. Yeah. It does, yeah. <laughs> so this, all this was before, then in 2009, the European Space Agency were recruiting, and as you know, uh, the patron of the Unlimited Space Agency is Tim Peake, the British astronaut, who w- was the only Brit that came through that process. But you were another person. How many people were going through this process? So it's crazy. So I didn't think I was going to get a chance to apply for Astronaut Corps because European Space Agency, NASA select every 18 months or so, uh, and I'd worked with them a lot, and I'd looked at their process... Um, but it takes a long time to become an American, so I didn't decide to do that. Uh, and then European Space Agency selects every 15 years, and I thought there's not going to be a selection in my time frame while I'm still young enough. So 2008, actually, they announced one, and we were living in Houston at the time, and I thought, this is it, got to apply. And there were 10,000 applications for what in the end ended up being about six spaces. And, and it was a pretty hardcore application process. They narrowed that down really quickly uh, to around about 500 people. And then I was down to that round. And then they took us all out to Germany. Uh, and, and then this place in Hamburg where for the entire day, as far as I could tell, they had us just basically playing video games. So it wasn't so <laughs> wasted. You know, Atari was not such a wasted thing in my childhood. Uh, but unfortunately, I hadn't played enough video games um, because the next round after that, I didn't get through. So that was it. So it's Tim Peake did better than me. But this is tough as well, isn't it? And clearly, because there is that split between scientists, engineers, medical. But there's going to be one. I don't think there were any medical doctors that were selected in that round, right? No, they were really, really looking for military pilots yeah. and people with multi-engine jet experience so and I didn't have actually back then I didn't have any flying hours so 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 yes I wish I'd done more flying but you do now you fly helicopters now well you say that I I sit you in the back said that. <laughs> <laughs> I said that yeah um, uh, I sit in the back we've got two brilliant pilots up front and then I'm, I'm in the back with the paramedic uh, an amazing amazing paramedic and, and really the doctor in that system you know uh, you, you're along for the ride until you get to scene and then they spit you out and you do your thing but you are trained you are, you, you're learning to fly or you do fly uh, I do fly yeah. I, and I'm I'm trying to do more flying lessons it's hard to so fit it all the dream in. is still alive uh, yeah, the dream's kind of still alive. I can see your partner there going, no, it isn't. She's sat there, not, no, shaking. And, no, we've had this conversation. The dream, is, but 500, the last 500 out of 10,000, that's very cool. Did you get any feedback as to what it was that meant you didn't get through at that point? Uh, not, not I don't want to sort of dwell on the failure part. I suppose what I'm just trying to stress is it's really hard to become an astronaut. It's an extraordinary thing, and it's a lot of people's dreams, but there's lots of other roles that you can play working in space. But I'm, it, what was it that just yeah, stopped? I mean, I, genuinely, they really like their pilot. You know, actually, if you look at the astronaut corps, they're much closer to being pilot engineers than they are anything else. And so 
you know, there was not a single person selected in the final. Actually, there was only one selected in the final six, I think, who had not had significant time piloting an aircraft, not just a, you know, not just a light aircraft. These were multi-engine, high-performance aircraft mostly. So they like that because they consider people who fly aircraft to have made decisions upon which their own lives depend, and that's the best model they have for that. So, so I guess that might have been part of it. I don't know for sure. No, okay. But basically, very, very cool. Well done. Um, in amongst all of the doctoring and the space doctoring, you also work as a TV presenter. I don't know how you fit it all in. You've made some really very excellent, beautiful programmes, beautifully filmed programmes, my favourite being the one about extreme environments. Um, I don't know if anyone saw this, but this was... Do you want to describe the extreme environments programme? Oh, so it was fantastic fun to make. That one's called To Boldly Go, and we sort of looked at all the extreme environments that the body can be exposed to. And, and it is an amazing thing, because, you know, really for most of human history, as far... You know, we really like to dwell around sort of equatorial latitudes and shorts and a T-shirt, and it was only really very much later that we started striking north and south. And then, even then, it's only been the last century that we've been able to go, say, to the South Pole, North Pole, to the tops of our highest mountains, forget aviation, forget going into space. So this was a program that was all about what you need to do to protect the human body against these environments, which you know, of which space is the most extreme. So again, it was just a nice big excuse for me to get on a bunch of very fun things and, and have a go on them. You did some extraordinary things, and the, some of the things I was watching, like uh, the training in cold water and having to escape from vehicles. And what was the, in terms of extremity, what was the most extreme for you? What was your favourite? Oh gosh, there were so many favourites in that. We did the helicopter underwater escape training, which... which Terror. Sounds terrifying, but it's actually quite good fun. And that's where they put you in this, this carcass that it looks like the inside of a helicopter. And then they chuck the carcass in a swimming pool and then it flips over and sinks. And then you have to punch your way out of it and swim out, otherwise you die. So, so it, it, it's to train you how to get out of a sinking aircraft. And, and helicopters sink really quickly because all the weight is on the top. Uh, and so if you're, uh, you get 15 seconds warning. But if your aircraft fails over, well, if you ever fly in a helicopter... I know it feels exciting, but the rational response is fear because they're very, <laughs> very complicated vehicles. And if they go into water, you get about 15 seconds warning and then it flips over and sinks at about a metre a second. So you've got very short time to get out, which is why we trained to do that. That was great fun. The worst thing was the cold water shock, which was, which was horrific. So the reason that even strong swimmers drown in um, cold water is because there's this thing called cold water shock where you s immediately start gasping really hard and, and then you really just can't move your muscles so, so even though you think I'm a good swimmer if my life depended upon I could swim you really really can't in cold water and so to show this they took me to a swimming pool that was about 12 degrees celsius which doesn't sound that cold but if they just put you in it uh, it's horrible. And that was in the most awful five minutes of my life. Awful. It didn't look like you were having a good time during I had that, no in honesty. Fun. <laughs> no, no, no. And there's, since you brought it up, actually, there's been a big uh, social media campaign recently about how to survive in cold water. You might know this, but I think it's worth repeating. The thing to do if you do find yourself in cold water is not to flap around, but is just to float. Yeah, take a big breath in and try and hold it and try and lie on the surface and, and wait and, and not to panic. But it is, I can't stress enough that I, water looks inviting, especially on a hot day. But if you, if you jump into it out of the blue, you're going to find yourself in difficulty, even if you were the school captain of the swim team at the time. So don't do it. Everyone got the message? Excellent. Uh, this summer, you are back at NASA. 
This summer I'm back to NASA, yes. Uh, so uh, towards the end of the summer, I'm very lucky. Um, I know quite a few people in the astronaut corps still. And the thing I've become really interested in is how these elite teams do what they do. How do you take a group of people, get them together, get them to gel, and then do something as amazing as, you know, fire them off the surface of the Earth or, or get them to, as we saw in Thailand recently, you know, get them to rescue people when you, it looks impossible. And I think that's become what I... Of all the things that I've done, that's the unifying theme. You get groups of otherwise ordinary people. You get them to make do these unbelievable things. And I kind of want to know more about that. So I'm going back to look at mission control, going back to look at some of the, the astronauts and, and, and look very closely at their training and particularly how they manage risk and, and, you know, and how they basically do something that should be routinely fatal and make it the stuff of, you know science fact this is very cool work that you're doing i really love that angle that you're coming out there which is taking that we were talking earlier and i know that all you guys that are working in that way in the nhs saving lives are very modest about it go well we're not it's just the job but applying it in that way is is wonderful maybe you could come and do that with us at answer because we're regularly i'm regularly putting us in potentially fatal situations trying to launch sheds into yeah it looks like you do need some health and safety there (laughs) As you've heard, Kevin has a huge amount of experience. He's an astrophysicist, a medical doctor. He's worked with space agencies, done extreme training. Now is your opportunity. If you have any questions that you've ever wanted to answer, who's got a question for Kevin? Uh, oh, so that was a question about the astronauts, do you have what it takes uh, program. So we made this series, which is a lovely six-part series, with me and a Canadian astronaut called Chris Hadfield that was all about... We took 12 scientists, really, scientists and doctors to see, put them through really realistic representative astronaut training and, and to see if any of them would really have made the cut. And these were 12 of the best qualified people you'll ever see and we washed out at least 11 of them. So the question was, are we going to make a second series? Well, I would really love to. Um, there are no plans to make a second series at the moment uh, unless people in a forest had a massive, massive writing campaign. Uh, uh, um, we we, we can a, do we, that. We can do that, right? Latitude. We can definitely do that. Um, I would love to, actually. Uh, and it was, I mean, of all the things I've ever wanted to do in TV, it was to make a series that sort of inspired people the way I was inspired when I was growing up to pursue science and and I think that was the message of that one for us that's what we wanted to put across which was all those people had at one time or another in their lives wanted to be astronauts and they were between them you know one of them was a surgeon one of them was a fighter pilot for the RAF one of them was a commercial airline pilot a couple of them were explorer researchers and so you know second place is pretty good yeah Uh, did you have anything to do with the application process selecting people for that so we didn't. So they get a different production crew who do that because there's a partly it's it's basically partly a reality format. But what we didn't want to do this time is what happens so often in other shows of that type is you're sort of turning the contestants on each other. So you select these people, and and in other shows they select them deliberately so they hate each other. Uh, and and we didn't want to do that, and we didn't do that, and 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 I'm glad we didn't. And I think it was a better show for it. Anyone here apply for that? <laughs> it was just me. Okay, but I mean, I've just been asking for some feedback as to why. I mean, I know I'm not a surgeon, or I mean, I can see why I wasn't selected. So it's a shame. I can't be bothered with a second series. Let's not do that. It might be the eyeliner. <laughs> well, I think you need more. You need, we had some people in the space shed last year, and they wanted the question was, how can we queer space? You know, that was a proper <laughs> latitude question. I think more eyeliner in space is something that we should. Be, that's a letter campaign I can get behind. Who's up with? There's four of us are up for five. Six of us up for queer... Seven, yeah, you see, it's a rolling campaign. Let's queer space. <laughs> Thank you for that question. There was a gentleman here in the middle. Do you know of any major accidents that have happened in space? So there have been lots of 
Well, there have been several notable accidents in space. So, so, so space is incredibly dangerous, uh, and most of that is the engineering, because the energy you need to impart to a vehicle to get into space is is literally the same sort of energy you'd have in a small nuclear weapon. So when we used to be at the launches as medical crew, so I used to sit at Cape Canaveral as part of medical crew, and we'd be wearing flight suits, and we'd be sat next to a fleet of Black Hawk helicopters, and we were stood at two miles from the launch pad, and, and, and we were dressed in flight suits not to look cool, but because if the thing blew up, we would then climb into the aircraft and fly away from the explosion for quite a long time <laughs> and then hang in the air until it was all clear and then land back down to go and rescue whatever was left, which wasn't going to be very much. There is, apart from two crews of firemen, when you launch one of those vehicles, there is no one within two miles of it. Uh, well, that's in America. And the firemen sit in a literal armoured patrol car at one mile. What about in Russia, just since you uh, mentioned uh, yeah, it? Yeah, in, in, in Russia... <laughs> In Russia, you're much closer. <laughs> but that, that's, that, that's the Russians. That's how they do everything. Um, and, and so there have been massive... So there have been horrible accidents at launch in the history of space flight with the rockets exploding. Of course, there's two Challenger space... There's two space shuttles, Challenger and Columbia, that, that exploded. Um, Challenger on launch, Columbia on re-entry, killing everybody on board. There was the Apollo 1 test fire, which is because they had a, uh, the capsule was full of 100% oxygen and a spark caught that and the whole thing flashed over. And then on top of that, there have been very near misses. So there's been miraculous close shaves. So like the Apollo 13 uh, disaster in which on the way to the moon, one of the Apollo aircraft experienced an explosion which disabled their vehicle, which left them unable to land on the moon or get home. And somehow somehow NASA got them back. So people always ask, did we fake the first landing on the moon? That's not the one that I think they faked. <laughs> it's the Apollo 13 rescue. So yes, there have been loads and loads and loads of nemesis. It's unlike any other occupation for the fact that your life is in peril every second of every day and death waits for you about that far away on the other side of your pressurised hull. And there's a huge amount of learning to take from it as well. I know it is awful and horrible and tragic, like the Apollo 1 fire on the launch pad, but the learning that comes from that is extreme. You learn such a huge amount by those people putting themselves at that risk as well. So, yeah, I mean, I've been studying this quite a lot recently, and, and Apollo, which uh, is 50th anniversary of Apollo next year, and that is the first moment in history where, to push back the frontiers of endeavour, really, you had to be more than just a, a single gifted person or indeed a small group of very, very gifted people. You suddenly had to be this sprawling army of literally thousands and thousands of people all knitted together by technology. Um, and, and with that, if you get it right, it can be, you know, the sort of stuff of, of total science fiction. It looks like science fiction. I mean, that's why people don't believe it. It's because Together, that thing can be so amazing. I totally agree. I'm so glad that you brought this up. And I think that's the thing that I was getting at earlier about the astronaut selection process. Anyone, anyone here grow up as a child thinking, I want to be an astronaut? Anyone here an astronaut? <laughs> Just me. Um, but there's, like you say, there's thousands and thousands of other jobs that are absolutely those people that are involved in human spaceflight. You can still be involved in those missions, but so many different things in engineering, in medicine, in programming, all those jobs and they're all available to to anyone particularly if you're young and starting to say that i'm just wondering woman in the front row you were here last year right and you were about to go off and study where are you studying now Falmouth, and you're studying illustration you didn't do the science thing but you're illustrating are you illustrating going to space you actually are <laughs> awesome that's cool and also is there's a guy leo is leo here 
There he is. You, um, you saw this last year, and your parents were telling me earlier that uh, as a result, you, you're now gone on to do astrochemistry. He's I'm waiting to you're hear. You're getting there. But it's the inspiration. So there's loads of routes in that um, are really, really working. Well, well, the thing is that when it comes to space exploration, although the the astronauts are simply the most visible element of that exploration, but actually everyone who works in the industry explores space. So I made, m my favourite film that I made actually was called Space Shuttle Final Mission, and that was the last mission of shuttle after 30 years of flying. And we talked to everybody involved uh, in that mission. And my favourite couple were the guys whose job it is to lock the door of the space shuttle before it launches and they have a key that's like the key to the space shuttle that's going to got a big key fob on it and in any other walk of life I, well i'm not sure what they would be doing but when you ask them what they do they say oh when it goes into space a bit of me goes into space i explore space and that's their sense and every single person who works in that organization is an explorer of space. You think of the space explorers as being Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, but it is every single person who works in the program from the bottom to the top. And, and, and the astronauts are simply the tip of the spear. Very cool, thank you. Um, another question for Kevin, gentleman here. Is God an astronaut? Is God an astronaut? Is, there's a question for you, Kevin. <laughs> yeah, that's a <laughs> small question for a morning at latitude. <laughs> We um, didn't cover that when uh, <laughs> I was at NASA. Um, possibly is, is the only, only useful answer I can mount on that one. Uh, there was R.T. Clark said, didn't he, uh, when he was talking about civilizations that might be capable of visiting Earth, he said, any civilization that is managed is capable of crossing the enormous gulf of distance between us and other star systems. Distances which are really impossible really to imagine. He said for, for those civilizations, any sufficiently advanced technology they would have would be indistinguishable, to us would be indistinguishable from magic. And so in that sense, I don't think any aliens ever have come to Earth uh, personally for lots of reasons. But if there were any here, they would be indistinguishable from magicians or, or religious figures, I think. I'm an alien. <laughs> <laughs> Shows the magic. I think you've, uh, you've had your question answered perfectly. Yeah, he's nodding. He's really happy with us. A really good one. Well done. Good. I've time for one more question, I would say. So don't be shy. So if you wanted to change, have a change of career at sort of anyway, any time in your life, what would be the advice you would give to somebody who wants to change careers and get into your line of work? What do you do for work? <laughs> You're a programmer, and do you mind me asking how old you are? 29. 29. You've been doing programming for about eight years. Are you thinking about a career change? Obviously. Yes. Okay, so just for good clarity, so if you were a 29, just say you were a 29-year-old programmer that was looking for a career change to get into space, Kevin, what, what would your advice be? <clears throat> I, I think actually that changing career massively is, is going to be the norm in the future, and certainly the norm of the through coming generation and, and people like yourself I mean I've done it I've done it over and over again the first time is the hardest time uh, when I went to my, my tutor and said I, I know you've trained me up to be an astrophysicist and I know I've finished and you've helped me but I want to be a doctor now that was hard but everything that came after that was much easier and I think that the future because the future is now so unpredictable because of the pace at which technology changes it that I think all of us, the idea of a job for life has gone, and not in a bad way. I think that you have to reinvent yourself over and over again. So I think that's necessity. So I think that's good. It's not, it's not a worrying thing. And I think specifically for you, I mean, 
you are in the ultimate adaptable profession. You, you're numerate, you know how to code, you know how to solve problems. So you could choose to reskill as anything. I mean, I, I didn't qualify medical school until I was 28. Uh, I didn't, uh, and then when I went to medical school, I went to NASA. I'd done my degrees before that, but but when I was at NASA, I realised that you had to be, you had to understand more about engineering to work with them closely. So I, I did a degree in engineering when I was 35, and I don't think that's the last degree I'll do. And and I think that in life now, it's essential that you reinvent yourself over and over again. And I, I talk to people about this now, but you know, everyone asks you what sort of doctor you want to be when you grow up. Um, uh, when you're at medical school and I've realised that for everybody the only correct answer to that is you, you want to be Doctor Who really <laughs> and I say that because because the right approach I think to life now is to re you know to re reinvent yourself over and over again and take a little bit of what you learned in the past with you but be okay with being fundamentally different each time uh, and so that's the way forward and so there should be nothing that's there is nothing that stops you from doing that if you want to work for ESA you can work for ESA you can work for NASA you can do that you just have to write a lot of letters and annoy them it's a very very beautiful piece of advice thank you very much and it is it's going back to the thing work hard annoy people just keep asking <laughs> can I do, can I go to space it works it worked for me it's worked for you Kevin isn't going to be running away I don't think so if you were maybe a bit shy or didn't get an opportunity to ask a question that you really had a burning question to he's going to be here you can grab him it's a festival don't actually grab him that's probably inappropriate we're going to be back here at two o'clock telling the story of how I hacked my way into space going to be here at four o'clock with Professor John Butterworth please do come back if you want to join the Unlimited Space Agency it is free see any of the ground crew they've got little cards that you can take away with you have all the details on it but for now would you please give a massive latitude thanks to dr kevin fong <laughs> kevin thank you so much thanks for listening to this episode of live from the space shed next time i'm chatting with astrophysicist and science communicator dr jen gupta so please subscribe on apple Podcasts, spotify google play wherever you get your podcasts you can follow us on Twitter and on Instagram at untheatre, that's U-N theatre. And you can find full details and social links at our website, thespaceshed.com. <laughs> I'll be there in a sec, MJ. So please share the Space Shed love on all your social channels. We would love to hear what you're enjoying about the podcast. Live from the Space Shed is an unlimited theatre production with Season 1 brought to you in association with the Science and Technologies Facilities Council, the Cockcroft Institute, the Space and Arts Council of England, with special thanks to Dr. Rob Appleby of Manchester University. Our theme music is Go by Public Service Broadcasting, used with their extremely kind permission. Our sound engineer and editor is Andy Wood, with additional sound design by Elena Pena. The show is produced by John Spooner and Alice Massey, with support from our friends at Story Things. Live from the Space Shed is an unlimited theatre production on behalf of the Unlimited Space Agency. <laughs> I really feel like you're old enough to be wiping your own butt. Fine. Fine. I'll be there in a mo. See you for more live from the space shed soon. <laughs> <laughs>